வெல்கம் டு கிரியேட்டிங் வெல் த்ரூ பேசிவ் அப்பார்ட்மெண்ட் இன்வெஸ்டிங் பாட்காஸ்ட் இன் திஸ் ஷோ வி வில் டிஸ்கஸ் அபவுட் பெஸ்ட் அண்ட் வர்ஸ்ட் எக்ஸ்பீரியன்சஸ் அபவுட் பேசிவ் அண்ட் ஆக்டிவ் அப்பார்ட்மெண்ட் இன்வெஸ்டிங் அண்ட் ஐ ஆம் யுவர் ஹோஸ்ட் ராமகிருஷ்ணா லெஸ் பிகின் த ஷோ The Multifamily AP360 Virtual Summit is bringing together today's leading multifamily investors, professionals and operators for two days of learning and networking on March 18-19 of 2022. Tickets are available at multifamilyap360.com. I hope to see you there. Today's our guest is Arya Chanbain from Results Advisory. Welcome Arya. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Sure. Thank you very much. Little bit about Arya. Arya's bread and butter is helping successful business owners and entrepreneurs invest their money intelligently, allowing their wealth to accumulate so they can stay focused on what they matters, their business and mission. He spent his entire career sharpening his operational experience with investments and valuing businesses. Having worked with top private equity, venture capital, hedge funds, investment managers and banks as well as wealth of success in the e-commerce and Amazon selling space. Arya is particularly skilled in managing large complex projects and teams accredited to his excellent executive leadership skills rooted in finance, business strategy, marketing and operations. So what's your investment philosophy, Arya? Well, I'm, my, my investment philosophy is um, it's pretty diverse in the sense that I'm probably invested across all asset classes. And when I say all asset classes, I mean stocks and uh, you know ETFs, as well as uh, pretty heavily invested in real estate, crypto. And um, I do a fair bit of um, venture early stage angel investing as well. So I definitely play across all the asset classes and you know, I'm partial owner in some businesses. Um, or full owner in some businesses. So, you know, kind of really diversified in terms of how I invest. But I think the way I think about investing is I'm looking for, you know, each asset class is looking for something different. So when I'm I'm investing in real estate, it's much more from a passive perspective. It's not something I actively manage, right? So it's a passive modality where I'm looking for cash flow. Um, as well as appreciation and any other tax benefits that come with it. And, you know, everything else, it depends on like in stocks, is it stable and long-term or is it, you know, short-term aggressive, you know, investing in some tech. But a lot of that also I, I get out of the early stage investing in startups And again, businesses, some of them are for cash flow and some of them are for longer term expected exits and things of that nature. So got it. And so which one is your favorite and which which got you best results so far? Um, <laughs> that's a great question. It, it probably depends on how you look at it. Um, some of the angel deals have, you know, obviously yielded phenomenal returns, but at the same time, like, you know, on a Uh, on a apples to apples basis. Yeah. For all, probably on a, a total dollar basis that may, may, may be what happens, but at the same time, you generally, like when you think about venture, you know, there's a saying like for angel investing, like you, you spray and pray, right? So you spread your money all over the place and you hope that something works. And so from an investment perspective, an investment philosophy, that's not like really great. And so, you know, I think most venture firms will tell you that like, out of a portfolio of 10 or 20 names. So think about it on every 10 that's in the portfolio. They're really looking for like one 
to carry the entire portfolio. If you can get a couple of singles or doubles in the other, you know, one, two, or three of those, great. But you're you're looking at like seven plus strikeouts typically. It's that one grand slam that carries the the returns of some of these portfolios. Whereas real estate, I've had my fair share of disaster that um, I've invested in probably in the earlier stages of, of that process, probably like in 2007, uh, maybe early 2008. But most of that is a little bit more stable. So I, the way I think about it is, is how much time do I have to dedicate to each thing? So I enjoy researching and looking at stocks, but at the same time, like I don't want to be a short-term trader because otherwise you end up like glued to your you know, computer or your phone or whatever it is. Um, so when you're thinking about it passively, if you can really diligence the real estate side and really get comfortable with the operator and really know, like, and trust them for some time, there's, I, I think there's a lot stronger passiveness outside of, you know, I don't know, maybe call it some of the blue chips or the dividend aristocrat type of stocks, or, you know, ETFs like the S&P 500 type of thing. Got it. Yeah. So you, you mentioned you investing passively in real estate. So would you share what are, what are all the factors you would consider, you know, before investing into any real estate deals? Yeah. So I think, I think some of the, um, the mistakes I learned were if you're looking for most of the time, if you're looking for like a home run, right? Like you're looking to like three, four five X your money. If you're looking at real estate, probability is there's something you don't know if that's the type of return you're chasing or someone is, is telling you something that's not probably realistic. And what I mean by like that is if you're telling me like we're looking at stocks, we're looking at crypto, maybe even looking at venture investing, angel startup investing, the risk reward is totally different, right? So the risk is the thing goes to zero, but the reward could be a two, three, four, 20, a hundred X. When you look at real estate though, it, at this point in time, it's very unlikely that you can expect to see a 10x your money on a deal. So what I'm looking for now, as specifically as an asset class, is when I invest in real estate, I'm looking for existing cash flow. So I don't want some if someone's going to come and tell me like, oh, it's it's pretty empty, it's vacant, it's it needs a ton of rehab. Yes, I know you can make a lot of money in some of the distressed plays. Yes, I know you can really, really take a vacant property and turn it around. But typically, that's not what I'm looking for from a risk-reward perspective. I'm looking for something that has reasonably strong occupancy, has room to improve the NOI, so the net operating income, and usually something that's kind of like rented below market compared to the comparables, so that I know that the net operating income, i.e. the cash flow to the investor base, will be fairly strong and improving. And then uh, upon exit... Um, I generally like better locations um, in the sense of like, you know, growing populations or stable populations, low um, unemployment type of areas. And that way upon exit, there could be a lift, but I'm not always in a rush to like be in projects that have to, that, that's dependent on a big improvement of cap rates, right? So upon exit, when you, when you sell a business, right, you take the EBITDA earnings before interest and taxes and depreciation and amortization, and you um, you put a multiple on it. And with in real estate, you, it's kind of the reverse. You take the net operating income and you divide it by what we call the cap rate, which is effectively the the discount rate or, or the risk rate. And so the the lower the cap rate, obviously the higher 
the the value. So I like taking a conservative stance on what that cap rate will look like upon exit. So if you're telling me like, oh, it's going to be an amazing deal, but it's very much driven by an approved exit in the sense of a lower cap rate than what you're paying today in the market, um, or it's, you know, People are just assuming that whatever it is, the driver is going to be so huge that the NOI increase will drive tremendous exit value. That deal is a little bit less interesting to me than one that, yeah, you may get an NOI improvement over the time, but that's going to improve the cash flows, which will improve the cash on cash returns. Um, so I'm less... I'm less focused on um, on you know how how much the I I, I don't want to see the, the project be really driven by such an improvement on cap rate. Um, I'd much rather see it an improvement on on NOI. And the other thing then is is if you improve the NOI, potentially you can refinance out some of the capital earlier than exit, and then you can hold the asset and maintain the cash flow for a longer period of time. Got it. Thank you. What are the sources you use to get, you know, population growth or job growth? And other question is like, how do you know the cap rate, you know, as a passive investor? Yeah. So, I mean, for me, when I'm, when I'm investing in these investment deals, like I've generally gotten to know most of the operators or the sponsors I, I've worked with or I invest in. The better ones at least include a lot of this information in the presentation they send out, like the deck. I generally ask personally for the working Excel model for any deal I'm investing in, because I just want to make my own tweaks and assumption changes. So I'll change the cap rates. I'll change the growth on, you know, some of the rent increases and things of that nature. So that kind of gives me my own certain level of comfort around certain things. And then you can do your own research just online of like, what is the unemployment? So, so again, a lot of the sponsors I work with give the general geography information but you can, you can just like, they're going to have to go get it. You can probably Google it and stuff. And if I was really, really like, oh, I don't really trust the cap rates or I wasn't really sure about the cap rates, you could probably find a friend who's a broker um, and they can probably at least get you some broad numbers. So at least you have perspective on, does this make sense? And it's, it's gotten to a point where we are in the cycle right now where, where pricing is, I wouldn't say so ridiculous, but um, you know, like there is tremendous differences in certain markets in terms of cap rates, whereas it, you know, used to be maybe many hundreds of basis points difference between some markets. It's that that gap has closed significantly um, outside of, you know, markets like New York city and things of that nature, but still like, you know, Florida, Texas, you know, even certain parts of Atlanta, Arizona, like the growth is, is pretty strong. Denver, that cap rates, the compression on cap rates have been has has been so strong that there isn't like a huge difference between markets. And the other thing you've seen is that like the A class A class A assets versus like class B C assets have also like tightened. That it almost begs the question of you know is there any value? Like I I tend to invest in a lot of players who you know, projects and invest in, in buying B and C class asset. But the truth is, is like, if you look at the cap rates right now, you know, I don't know that there's a massive difference between an A and a C. And that just begs the question of, do you want to be buying a C if you're already paying A cap rates? So that's just kind of something that I consider and, and think about, you know, in this market. Yeah, that's great information. Thank you very much. And would you share any of your best passive investing experience so far? I think, you know, it all depends how you define best. I've had I've had investments where 
we were taken out really quickly because there was just like a ridiculous offer from someone who wanted to 1031 into a new property. And, you know, so sometimes you'll see a 40 or a 50% ROI in inside of 12 months. I've had that happen. And the first time it happened, it was really exciting. And then afterwards, I was like, this is not such a interesting thing anymore because now I have to redeploy this money, which, you know, I guess high class problems, but they made sure that the deal took at least 12 months so that there was no short term capital gains. But you know, redeploying money sometimes is not as simple because if you spend the time and you were presented an opportunity that was attractive, doesn't mean that you're going to have another one right away. You know, so the, to me, the winners are like the better ones are like, Hey, you're, you're seeing seven to 11% cash on cash annually. A couple of years in, you can refinance, take anywhere from like a third to you know, three quarters of your money off the table and then continue to see that same cash flow or close to it. Obviously the cash on cash percentage will spike because you've taken so much money off the table. And then, you know, if you're in a position where you can actually do another refinance in another few years, take all the money off the table and then hold it for longer and continue to cash flow and then eventually sell at a improved, you know, whether it's a same cap rate, but just a higher NOI or a better cap rate, those to me from a multifamily passive, you know, investing standpoint, those are really attractive. And, you know, if you find those, those are, to me, those are home runs in the space. Got it. Yep. And would you share any of your worst passive investing experience so far? The worst was a, a heavy rehab project. I mean, there were some development projects that were that went terribly wrong as well. And that's when I, I learned, like, if I'm going to invest in this asset class, understand my, my risk rewards. But even there was a one that was very heavy, you know, I, w- I wouldn't even call it value add. It was very heavy, like capital intensive, repairing, fixing, doing things. And, um, you know, from that perspective, those are the ones that have gone terribly wrong. Wrong. We had we had one that was just such a disaster. It was losing so much money that the investors were offered um, like ten cents on the dollar, or they had to ante up and kind of make a, a capital call. And I just at that point in my investment career and where I was, it just wasn't something I didn't want to double down, and I wasn't looking to put more money in. Um, and it was a you know pretty big write off. And ultimately, like that project, after it made it through like two really two, three rough years, like the 09, 2010. So it was like, you know, oh, 08 was rough, 09 was terrible, you know, 2010. By the time 2011, 2012 has rolled around, like that project ended up doing pretty well. And they that that group's actually held on to it. And they still to this day in 2021, they still own that asset and it, it's doing really well. But it was it was a disaster for a while. And, and, you know, I, I pretty much took a, a 90% write off. So what tips do you have for people who simply don't know what to do with their money? Yeah. So I think, I think it depends on how much money you have. That's the real truth, right? Like if you're starting out and you're like, well, I want to get into passive investment in, in real estate. I think, I think the real question is, is do you really want to be passive or is this something you actually want to be doing? Cause I make a very strong distinction to people. And that is, do you want a job, meaning are you trading your time for your money or are you truly looking to be a passive investor in things? And, and you have to really know the difference. So like if you don't have money, a lot of people, especially like if you're, if you're hanging around the real estate space, people will tell you, 
you know, do things that generate cash, like, you know, wholesaling, meaning like go finding good opportunities, get it under contract and then flip the contract and get it paid at, at closing some kind of fee. And that's fine, but that's not passive. Like you've now taken a lot of time, energy, and, and probably like a, almost like a day job to kind of do this. So if you can learn skills, whether it's in real estate or not, and like generate more money, that will allow you to have more capital to invest in these things. But otherwise, I think start talking to people who are doing it, learn from them, understand what what makes it an attractive investment for them. And then you can start to understand like, hey, do you agree with that? Do you not? I mean, I can tell you like, yeah, read this book, that book or whatever. But the truth of the matter is, is you're going to get more exposure and experience from either talking to people who are doing this or ask if you can like dedicate some time to a group who's looking for something like add value to them, help them almost like intern for them and maybe be able to have some sort of invest small, tiny investment in these properties. You could also read annual, you know, quarterly filings or annual reports, what we call 10Ks or 10Qs of some of the publicly traded REITs. So the real estate investment trusts. And a lot of times you'll gain insights into what they're seeing in their marketplaces and how they're thinking about things or the home builders, right? So you have like, you know, uh, NVR and, you know, uh, DR Horton and, and Toll Brothers. Like these are big home builders that typically like on their quarterly calls and definitely in their, their reports, they will talk about like what they're seeing in the marketplace. And they may not give you cap rates on everything, but they'll give you like flavor of how they're thinking about the market or where they're seeing the market. And that'll just give you like better education on top of anybody else you can kind of talk to. Got it. Cool. So what is your current focus? Share something you're excited about now. Yeah. So I've been, um, you know, I primarily invest um, in the real estate space while I'm investing. I'm primarily in, you know, multifamily apartment complexes, but I'd say over the last couple of years, I've also taken an interest in storage. It's been a a very interesting asset class. I thought it went on a, a great run and I thought maybe I missed it. But the truth of the matter is, is like the more I studied it, I actually had a conversation with, um, uh, Grant Cardone, who, you know, I have never invested in any of his things or his programs or anything, but, but we were having a conversation and I asked him how he thinks about storage. And this was early in 2021. So now we're in October of 21, but this, this was like January time. And I asked him if it was time to kind of go negative on it specifically because I feel like the next generation really doesn't have an attachment to physical items and objects as much as prior generations in the in America. And, you know, he he said that he first and foremost thinks that there's at least another decade to even if even if that statement is true, that like the, the younger generation, the millennials or or whoever, whatever generation you, you are, um, are you're not as attached to stuff. The current generation still have like another decade to kind of work through all their excess stuff. Um, but, you know, he thinks that ultimately that may not even play out in the sense that like, as, as these generations get older, they may start to want to accumulate more things. Um, but what I've learned in look at, looking into the sector is first and foremost, storage from a CapEx perspective is way lower, right? Like you, what it takes to, from a capital expenditures and renovations and these kinds of things, like you put much less into it. So it's a, it's a much lower cost, um, to maintain the projects, uh, at the same time, I guess living in the Northeast, where I've always grown up with having a basement and even having an attic in most of my homes, 
it was something that like, you know, the storage facilities here in, in New York, New Jersey are primarily indoor weather controlled four you know, four story type of buildings. And it didn't seem like a, you know, a need for many people. But as I've studied the industry and learned much more, obviously, like in the South, take Florida and Texas and even like the Oklahoma areas where basements are not something that people have because you can't dig, you'll be in the water. Storage is a much hotter commodity and the demand for storage units is much higher, um, as well as places that have, you know, big outdoor or outdoor sports season, whether it's a winter in, you know, the Colorado areas where people want a place to store their ski jets or, you know, their, their snowmobiles or whatever it is, or um, boats or things of that nature in the South where you have outdoor weather for the summers and things of that nature. So there's definitely, you know, in ski jets, uh, water ski jets on and stuff like that. So there's, there's definitely demand for it. And uh, even though the asset class has gone up in value and, and cap rates have come down so much, I think there's still good opportunity in that space. Great. Yeah. So, so much insightful information. Thank you. So any one advice that have impact on you, Arye? I, I don't think there's like one, I think the way, I don't, I don't remember if it was an advice from someone or just like things I've kind of learned. And that is when, when you're investing in anything, whether it's real estate, whether it's your business, whether it's another person's business, whether it's the stock market, I've always said like, you need to, you need to think about the exit upfront, right? Like what is the end game? So you always have the end in mind, whether you're starting your own business, investing in business, investing in something, like what is the the game plan here? And I think that helps people frame things a lot differently. Like even if you're getting into a short-term stock trade, like what, at what point are you going to get out? Right? So before you get into the trade, you want to know what the exit plan is because let's just make something up. Okay. Let's say I told you the next hot stock tip is X, Y, and Z, and it's currently trading at $10. So you buy it at $10. And the next thing you know, over the next couple of days, it goes, you know, it goes from 10 to 12 to 14 to 15 to 20. And, and now you're sitting at a place where you're like, oh my goodness, I've doubled my money does greed settle in? And all of a sudden I expect this thing to go to 50 and it goes to 30, 35. And you're like, Oh, this is awesome. And it kind of like gets to like 37. And then all of a sudden it just starts cratering and forget the fact that you could have sold at 37. You're, you're like, okay, no, no, no it's going to bounce. Okay. It's down, it's down to 25. <sighs> Don't worry about it. It's coming back. It's down to 20. And next thing you know, it's down to 12 and then it's at eight and you're like, what just happened? Right. And if you went in with the mindset of like, listen, at 20% up, I'm going to sell off a piece. And at 50% off, I'm going to sell off another piece. And then when I'm, when I'm up like 75%, I'm going to, you know, have taken out like almost all of my principal or whatever it is. And if it's, if it's two X's, then I'm going to, I'll be out and the rest is profit and whatever happens, happens. Like that may not be the best strategy, but I'm, I'm outlining something where knowing what you're going to do before you get in allows you to remove a lot of the emotions. And I think what ruins a lot of investors is the emotions. You're, you're just emotionally tied to things. And ultimately you tend to make bad decisions when you're emotionally charged, whether they're, you know, you're positively or negatively. And, and so I think in general, like trying to learn to discipline your emotions when investing is probably super important. Yeah. Great. So any, any books that impacted your life and what way? 
Yeah. So, um, me, I, I'm a pretty big reader. I read a lot of books. Um, but I would say one of the first books that I read that really, um, I'm going to, I'll give two books and neither of them are real estate just for the record. The first one is called the richest man in Babylon. And it really taught me at a young age and not to say like, I, I didn't know a lot of this before per se. Like when, when I was younger, I was probably investing in stocks and mutual funds when I was much young, much, much younger, uh, probably earlier than you know your average person was, but the richest man in Babylon, I probably read like after I already had a, a good job on wall street and the takeaway, like the book is quick. It's a quick read. It's, it's an old book. Um, it's probably like, you know, hundred, 200 pages maximum. And it's a story it's, it's, you know, parables and fables and, and stuff like that. But what, what the book really kind of framed is your money needs to work for you. Sitting on it is just never gonna, you're never gonna save enough. That's not a way to live. And so you need to be deploying your money to basically have your, you know, think of your money as a little worker bees and they've got to go out and recruit other worker bees for you. Um, and so that, that book really changed how I thought about a lot of things. And then the, the other book that's really good from a, just a stock market perspective, like a lot of people like struggle, like understanding some of the fundamentals. And that is the book is called uh, the little book that still beats the market. I think it was originally written in 2004. And then I think they redid it in 2014 and it's probably due for like another update, but the truth is it gives you a lot of fundamental thoughts on just like how to think about the stock market and how to simply, you know, beyond um, beating, you know, the the stock market with, you know, playing the averages in the sense of like the S&P 500. Cause there's another one, I think like the, the Vanguard founder wrote about, you know, it's also the little book that, you know, simply beats the market or some, something like that. Th- those are both really good books. So how can listeners can connect with you? Sure. So uh, you can follow me on Instagram, which is uh, REA, the businessman. Uh, and on Instagram, you can head over to my website, either um, solutionadvisory.com or futurefundme.com are probably two other good places to find more. Cool. And thank you very much, Arya. And thanks for sharing your past investing experience and also your insights and your you know experiences with real estate and self-storage. My pleasure. The Multifamily AP360 Virtual Summit is bringing together today's leading multifamily investors, professionals, and operators for two days of learning and networking on March 18-19 of 2022. Tickets are available at multifamilyap360.com. I hope to see you there. If you like the show, please subscribe, share, rate, and review. And if you want to connect with me, please send me a message info at ushacapital.com. Thank you for listening. Creating Wealth Through Passive Apartment Investing Podcast. I hope you learned something from the show. See you in the next episode. Thank you. Any information provided from these shows are educational purpose only. As always, please consult with your own CPA, legal and financial advisor before investing.